What's up, everybody? Welcome to Up and Over. We're going to be diving into our second episode of our mini-series on the U.S. Women's National Team, Efforts for Equal Pay. Today, we're going to be kind of elaborating a bit further on equal pay itself and some absurd takes that I'm sure many women hear all the time. It doesn't matter their profession. So, yeah. That's what we got on the plate for today, and then we're also going to back it up with some actual data. You know, what a concept. Do your research, right, Blake? Yes, sir. You know, we're going to do a little bit of a shout-out to start our episode out today. Um, Turns out our largest listener base is coming to you from Columbus, Ohio, so we see you, Columbus. Yes, we We do. Um, Twin Cities Group where many of Matt and my friends reside. Step it up. Needs to be where better. Where you at? Where you at? All right. And I think just to kind of square things off, we're going to open up with um, defining equal pay. We touched on that in the last episode, but since we're going to be talking about pay specifically, we're going to reiterate what that definition is. So Blake, do you want to? Give that a go there. Yeah, I can try. All right. So definitions of Equal Pay Act. No employer having employees subject to any provisions of this section will discriminate within. uh, I don't know. Maybe you should take this, Matt. You did do this work. it's, It's a redundant sentence that's just basically saying no employer that has employees um, can discriminate on the basis of sex for paying wages to those employees at the particular establishment. This is the same case that it would be at um, where Blake works um, at a restaurant. You know, that's kind of the basis where if you're on the, if you're employed to the same level, you're going to receive the same pay or in in theory and in in theory it should work that way it doesn't always in practice and that's the point of today's episode and on top of that i want to say since the u.s women's national team is pressing charges well has this lawsuit against ussf on the grounds of equal pay Um, It is important to note that the Equal Pay Act does not automatically obligate employers to pay men and women the same wages. And then in quote from an article, it says, this is particularly true when an employer can explain such discrepancies as emanating form of a seniority system, a merit system, or a system that measures earnings by quantity and quality of production. So in other words, women's employees being paid less does not by itself prove that the employer is breaking the law. The employer, however, must show that the difference is explainable on account of a non-discriminatory reason or reasons. So and what we'll dive into further down the line is along the terms of skill level and how we believe that's very... <laughs> very poor measure because it can't quite compare those things. Uh, Yeah. So Blake, 
why don't you kind of keep moving us forward here on on these grounds? Yeah, so the the lawsuit itself um, specifically states that beginning as early as 2012 and at various times thereafter, members of the women's national team through their union, the women's players, the women's national team players association have demanded that the U S soccer federation offer women's national team players pay equal to pay afforded to men's national team players. These demands, however, have been rejected and the USSF has paid and continues to pay the women's national team players less for comparable services than the U.S. Soccer Federation pays to their male counterparts. So, Blake, how does that uh, pay differentiation break down between the men's and women's team? Well, there was a pay structure that was in effect from 2001 to 2018, um, and the men's play or the men's national team players received the minimum amount of five thousand, uh, regardless of outcome. Okay, now that minimum amount could increase depending on the rank of their opponent. Uh, essentially, uh, it could be from like six thousand two hundred fifty dollars all the way up to like seventeen thousand six hundred twenty-five dollars per game. Right? Uh, again, depending on the rank, the FIFA rank of their opponent, and whether or not they would win or tie the game. Now, the U.S. Soccer Federation has rejected time and time again the women's national team players' request for pay that is equal to the men's players. Right? Now, in 2012, the women's team demanded equal pay, and the USSF offered the women's national team players' compensation only if they won games against FIFA-ranked top 10 teams. The United States Soccer Federation would not have paid them for losing games, tying games, or winning against teams outside of the top 10, only against top 10-ranked opponents. Well, that's a, that's a lot of hoopla. If the men's team are getting paid for losing, granted they're on the uptick, but still, if you lose, you still get paid as for the men's team counterparts. So uh, what's kind of developed since that 2012 period? So then once again in 2016, right, the women's national team players demanded for equal pay again. And a representative from the U.S. Soccer Federation admitted that the Federation has and will continue to have a practice of gender-based pay discrimination. Specifically stating that market realities are such that the women do not deserve to be paid equally to the men. Now, the USSF, the USSF made this statement after it had already conceded, right after it had already said that the women's national team outperformed the men's national team in both revenue and profit from 2015, right, the prior year. Well, that sounds like a load of baloney and and oh man so getting paid less while you're still in every every outlet every sort of respective tick mark that you can check off to deserve getting paid more for 
and you're not pulling in that extra pay. That's that's abs- that's wildly absurd. It's and, infuriating. And and honestly, though, there's not surprisingly, if any if anybody pays attention to the way women's sports are discussed in the U.S., there's a large audience that really just likes to kind of voice their opinions as to why they don't deserve getting paid and often aren't quite articulate. They pretend to be. And yeah, that's kind of where we're going to, we're going to move away from maybe the hyper-technical details of the lawsuit itself. We're going to kind of dissect a video that for I reasons unbeknownst to me, it went viral, not I guess truly viral, it has a million views on YouTube, which is a considerable amount of views for any video that's titled Why It's Impossible to Give the U.S. Women's National Team Equal Pay. And this person thinks they're explaining it very clearly, but if you know anything about the lawsuit, you would understand that this person doesn't have their wits about them in the slightest, just a strong opinion that's very uh, grounded in stupidity. It's very evident that he did no research. Um, We should also say that this video was released uh, July 11th, I believe, at least on YouTube is is the date, Uh, July 11th, 2019. Which so. is right around the time the women's team was about to embark on their title race for the latest World Cup in France. And just a few months after uh, they had filed the lawsuit in March. Yeah, just to kind of put that in timeline into perspective, and I'm guessing that's primarily why it has the amount of views it does is because it hit it right on the mark in the heat up period leading to the Women's World Cup. And while the equal pay lawsuit was still making headlines um, for plenty of good reasons. So Blake, you have a lot of strong feelings about this video. You've broken it down minute by minute, almost second by second. I'm going to let you take the reins about this video and I'm going to kind of just let you have your, have your way with it here. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I watched this video and I was infuriated so many times over, but we're just going to start um, at about the, the 150 mark. It's, it's approximately nine minutes long. Um, at, at about the 150 mark, he goes on to say that the overwhelming factor that determines an athlete's pay is entertainment value, right? Athletes are entertainers. They're no different from actors or musicians. And the one discrepancy between male and female pay that does not exist in music or movie business is the level of competition on the field. Please, please note that we're directly quoting. As we go through this video, we are directly quoting the video. We do not hold these opinions. Hence why we're discussing it. So yeah, this is a direct quote saying that athletes are paid on their entertainment value and that alone. Going back to the document real quick, you know, the USSF has admitted that the women's national team players have been paid less than comparable to their men's to their men counterpart, their male counterparts, right? Now, this video then goes on to say 
uh, like 215, 220, no one would argue that men are overall better singers than women or that women are better actresses than men because it just wouldn't make any sense and it's simply not true. That is, first off, like, you're going to say this and just go with, it just wouldn't make any sense. It's simply not true. Like, there are definitely people who would argue this. But moving forward, comparing similar talent levels, there is no gender discrimination in respective entertainment industries, music or acting. Right. This is him carrying forward this idea. Um, But when comparing dissimilar talent levels, it's solely based on how many people will pay to see them. The example that he gives is uh, Christian Bale versus Lindsay Lohan. Right. Most people would probably say that Christian Bale is a better actor, but that is not due to gender when comparing Christian Bale to Meryl Streep. That is, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, Matt? They're on like an equal pay level because they're equally entertaining, at least yes. in their expertise. They're both maybe a more refined uh, individual in the industry. That's that's what this guy is stating um, as his points here. And he kind of goes on to, he's like, you wouldn't compare the pay that Whitney Houston received to, I think his example was Little Pump, which is i but saying what was his what was his counterpart comparison to whitney uh, houston i suppose you could maybe just elvis look, i uh, think elvis which i found a weird comparison but yeah. like you, you kind of get the point on like there's there's different tier levels that you see in the revenue that actors and actresses make and singers make based on you know their their proficiency in the industry um which yeah which this individual is saying you can't really argue the gender discrimination there because talent and uh marketability because they're more entertaining more people go to see them therefore they get paid more right now then just rewind a bit to that comment earlier the one he says the one discrepancy between male and female pay that does not exist in the music or movie business right so in sports is the level of competition on the field so he's he's saying right when when you're on a similar playing field right in acting or music or other entertaining entertainment industries then there's really no discrimination on pay but the reason that there's a discrimination of pay in sports is because of this level of competition on the field. That's what this individual is saying. I'm, We're beating a dead horse by saying this, but we just yeah. want to get it the and, point and across. We, this we, is not us. But we, but we all know that like <laughs> there's underlying notes of gender discrimination pay in any industry. We're just going to say that up front. Blake yes. and I believe that and understand that that's the case. And But when we're talking about level of competition and skill, this kind of brings it back to part of USSF's argument against the women's national team is going to lie on that facet of performing at a particular skill level. They're going to say the men's national, the, the skill required to be on the men's national team and the skill they have to perform at is at a greater level than the women's national team does. And I will say that's awfully subjective 
there's no proper way to compare that because you just really can't compare the two. It's um, and at the end of the day, they're both tasked with the same job, representing the U.S. in the World Cup and ideally winning it. And the women's team has won numerous times. And uh, this video further dissects kind of where this individual thinks the money is coming from. So, Blake, you want to keep moving? Yeah, forward? it's very narrow minded. Um, but let's uh, continuing in the video. Um, at like three and a half minutes in, he says that the development of the women's game is way behind the men's game. I'm paraphrasing here uh, because internationally, the support of the women's game is poor, leading to smaller and lower level talent pools. Uh, in turn, gives a lower level of competition. All right. So, uh, uh, and then he he also says something about the lack of opportunity given to women in other countries um, and how women have more opportunities in the u.s than many other countries around the world uh and then at about just after the four minute mark he introduces graphs uh brings in some data i'll try and do my best to to paint this picture for you in 2018 the men's world cup generated six billion dollars that is billion with a B. In 2015, the Women's World Cup generated 73 million. That's a difference of approximately $5,927,000,000. Million. $5.927 okay? It's a lot. The men's total prize purse, right, was $400 million. That was 6.7% of the total revenue. 38 million of that, 400 million, was given out to Champions France. That equals 0.63% of the revenue and 9.5% of the 400 million prize money. Right? FIFA pockets about $5.6 billion from the into their corrupt, corrupt pockets, we'll say. <laughs> yeah. Now, then he goes on for the women's expected revenue of 2019. I don't know why he didn't just use 2015 numbers, um, but whatever. He goes on for the women's 2019 World Cup, which at the release of the video is just a couple short weeks away. And he says the, the predetermined prize pool for the women's World Cup in 2019 is $30 million, right? And the expected total revenue is 100 to $150 million. So the prize money is approximately 20 to 33% of the total revenue. Champion takes home $4 million, which is 13.33% of the $30 million in prize money. And which ends up being like two and a half to 4% of the, the total expected revenue. Using his median data and on a percentage basis, 
the women's World Cup champion earns approximately five times as much as the men's does. So, yeah, this individual is saying that um, based on the distribution of the prize money in the World Cups, women's and men's respectively, he's saying that the women's teams take home about five times as much as the men's team does. And therefore, they shouldn't be complaining about equal pay issues. Now, here's the other big thing. Five times this, as much on a percentage basis. Just But here, here's the big issue. None of those numbers are really rooted at all in what this lawsuit is. So this guy's over here thinking he's got some like 1,000 IQ. And <laughs> he's really just like, you know, not... It's over 9,000! <laughs> he... he he believes he's on this track of saying, you know, and, oh, they're not, you know what? They're not entertaining. But if you look at the numbers based on the pre- on the brackets and the way FIFA distributes the money, they're getting paid five times more as champions than the men's champions teams do. That is, that's a way to look at it. But that is not even like remotely close to what, this lawsuit is, which is between USSF and the women's national team, not FIFA. FIFA is a completely separate entity. They might influence, but they're completely separate. So this guy doesn't have his wits about him at all in the slightest. There's no perception on where the money is going and what the pay is because he's just talking about prize money. These teams still get paid on a per game basis as we already kind of laid out. And we already laid out that the men's team gets paid win or lose. And the women's team has been presented with an option of win or nothing. So um, win or nothing against top 10 against top 10 even. So yeah, Blake, they, they were I, presented with that and denied it, but yeah. Yeah. And Blake's gonna Blake, Blake, you, you want to talk numbers? Cause this guy, I'm a numbers guy. Numbers. Yeah. So uh, go ahead. Uh, yeah. Right. He wants to talk numbers. Let's talk numbers. Uh, let, uh, I'll just like give you some straight from the lawsuit if you want. Right. So from March 2013 to December 2016, women's national team players could earn a maximum salary of $72,000 plus bonuses for winning non-tournament games, friendlies, right? Or, uh, Let's see, that's friendlies, World Cup-related appearances and victories, and for placement at the Olympics, right? 72000 maximum salary. A comparison of the women's versus men's pay shows that if each team played 20 friendlies in a year and each team won all 20 friendlies, female players would earn a maximum of $99,000 or just under $5,000 per game. While similarly situated men's players would earn an average of $263,320 or $13,166 per game against the various levels of competition they would face. On a per game basis, Matt, the men's team under, under that scenario... It's like Good. two and a half times more. Yeah. Crazy. Right? A a 20 game winning top tier women's national team player would 
earn only 38% of the compensation of a men's national team player, a similarly situated men's national team player. The compensation afforded women's national team players for World Cup competition was even more disparate than for friendlies. From March 2013 to December 2016, that same time period, women's national team players earned only 15000 total for being asked to try out for the World Cup team and for making the roster. Men's players earned 55000 for making their team's roster in 2014 and could have earned 68750 for making their team's roster in 2018. So let's hold up there for a brief moment before you finish these points out of the lawsuit. For those of you longtime listeners, you remember our previous episode titled, Would You Play for 20K? <laughs> the the men's players, oh man, there's been a lot of young players going to Europe for, I think on the low end, $3 million or 3 million euros. Weston McKinney's having a blast over at Juventus. I promise you this aside is going to be short, but his uh, sticker price is 18 million. Christian Pulisic, 64 million. And they're getting, granted, it's chump change to them when they go play for the national team. But that's not an excuse for why the women's team is even fractional to that. The men's players clearly don't need it. They clearly don't. It's kind of incentive. It's just, it's a passive incentive. It's kind of like a, here you go, bud. Nice job. Where it is like, it's just, it's in the numbers. It's literally right in front of us. 15,000 for the women's national team, just for being asked to try out. And that's. It's 40,000 less than the men's in 2014 compared to the women's in 2015. Yeah. So why don't you keep going forward with the, the last couple points from the lawsuit that we're kind of reaching out for here. Right. Okay. So then looking into like the rounds of the world cup, right? It gets so skewed. Uh, in 2014, the U S soccer federation provided the men's national team with performance bonuses that totaled $5,375,000 for losing in the round of 16. Okay. 5.375 million for losing in the round of 16. Whereas in 2015, the U.S. Soccer Federation provided the women's national team with only $1,725,000. Matt, how, where did they end up in the World Cup in 2015? What place? Oh, they won it. Yeah, they won, they won it. They won it and got $3.6 less dollars. I'm starting to think that the... Uh the idiot that made the video we just dissected might be closer in relation to USSF uh, thought processes. <laughs> I'm pretty sure USSF is going off that entertainment value point as well. It's, it, it's stupid. Um, yeah. The women's national team earned more than three times less than the men's national team while obviously forming, performing way better. And they won it again in 2019. And I, we don't have the numbers for that in front of us, but you could just imagine. I mean, this is like halfway through his video at this point. Yeah, we're, we're only halfway like, through the nine minutes, but we're kind of... I, I don't need to say anything else because the rest of the video is literally just him repeating this BS. 
Now, Matt, we've done a basic summary of the video, right? Tell me what your reaction was when you first watched or listened to this. Well, that's a neat perspective. If you really didn't have your head on your shoulders at all and understood the very fundamentals of anything that's going on with this lawsuit <laughs> I, do I, a little do a little reading guy i i'm pretty sure matt that what you sent to me was watch this video i think this is a very poor take like did he even read the lawsuit at all like even just like like the the basic premise of it that hey, if if that guy's listening the lawsuit's only 25 pages although New that York might be Times too much for you that you can find mm -hmm. just look it up it's pretty simple yeah. anyways let's keep moving forward all right so we've talked some numbers we've talked about what he's saying let's just dismantle this guy's absurd argument now <sighs> deep breath okay so if the reason the women's national team is paid less because the women's game is less entertaining to watch then it would stand to reason that the women's national team would pull in less revenue than the men's national team. Right, Matt? Yeah, you would think so. So then how is it that the women's national team generated more revenue than the men's national team from 2016 to 2018? Right. This broke out of reports from the Wall Street Journal on June 17th, 2019, just before this video was released on YouTube. When the journal obtained audited financial reports from the U.S. Soccer Federation, right? These are coming straight off the, the financial reports. The women's national team generated more revenue than the men's national team over that three-year period, three period from 16 to 18. Uh, it was 50.8 respectively, women's to men's, okay? Now, I know that there are usually some payroll pay walls around the Wall Street Journal, right? So maybe this guy just like never saw the news or something. He created an entire video about why it's impossible to pay the women as much as the men, right? The the paywall behind like articles or whatnot and just not understanding what's going on is absolute crap. It's, it's a terrible excuse, especially when other sources began reporting on it in the following day. CNBC, for example, completely free on June 19th, two days after the Wall Street Journal broke it, and they specifically referenced the Wall Street Journal as well. Um, back to the numbers. 2016, the year after the women's national team won the 2015 World Cup, they generated approximately $1.9 more in revenue than the men's national team, in 2017, revenue was approximately the same between the two. And 2018, the women's team slightly less than the men's national team. That might have been in proximity to the fact of uh, World Cup quali qualifiers kind of tapering off at the end there, numbers rolling through. And as we all know, they the men's team was unsuccessful in qualifying for the World Cup that year. But, you know, if we're talking numbers right. leading up to World Cup qualifiers, there's typically a lot of hype, a lot of things being purchased. So I, I would say that makes some sense that in 2018, we maybe saw more revenue for the men's team just on a natural uh, cycle of World Cup qualifying. Would that be unfair to say? 
No, no, and I I thought the same thing when I when I saw that graphic and saw the numbers. Mm-hmm. Now in in 2018, right, the U.S. Soccer Federation generated approximately 101 million dollars in total operating revenue. Now, some of that comes from game revenue, which is like mostly ticket sales. Uh, However, on the men's side, that also includes appearance fees that opposing teams pay to the USSF to play against the US for a game. So not only is the men's side of that revenue just ticket sales, but also fees that they get from other federations wanting to play or scheduling a game against the US. Women's side is just ticket, well, mostly just ticket sales. This comes down to uh, collective bargaining agreements, but to keep this um, rolling forward, we'll touch on that in a bit. Yeah. Now, about half of that operating revenue, which the operating revenue, again, is $101 million, approximately $49 million of that is marketing and sponsorship. Okay, now that includes sale of broadcast rights for U.S. soccer games and sponsorships sold to like Budweiser, Nike, and others. Now, 101 minus 49, we get to 52 million left uh, in revenue, right? So that, that takes out the marketing sponsorship. Now, if we assume we know the three-year period of 2016 to 2018 the women's team pulled in 50.8 million let's just say an approximate third of that goes right into 2018 we know that that's not exactly true but for simplicity's sake right so that puts them at between like 16 and 17 million for that year okay uh 52 less like 17 we're looking at like 30,000 left in revenue um, that is unaccounted for. Then we add the men's team, which is about the same. Let's take 16,000 off of that. Off of 35, we're down to just under 20,000 left in revenue unaccounted for. Okay, now, basically what I'm trying to get at is the scales are even. And it's, it's going to make even more sense when I when I say this. And and as an accountant, this next bit perplexes me um, just because I would assume U.S. soccer would want as much information as possible when it's looking at its, its revenue streams for analysis and determining what they can improve upon to create more revenue. All right. So so what perplexes me is this is that. U.S. soccer sells broadcast rights and sponsorship as a bundle, meaning they don't sell it separately for the women's team and the men's team. That $49 million of marketing and sponsorship is lumped together for the two teams. Okay, So this is why I'm saying there's $20 million of revenue left unaccounted for in that math that I did, and it's the scales are basically even at that point. Okay? It's just sitting there. No one's getting it. Right. Oh, man. I'm not going to go into what the rest of that 20 million is. um, But that's, you know, just one fifth of what they, of what USSF pulled in that year, which 20% is 
you know, quite a bit, but still when you look at the other 80% and it being split 40% to each men's and women's team, essentially, it, you're not going to see a lot of difference with that remaining mm-hmm. 20%, right? So yeah. a lot of information there. Um, but I, I want to jump back to uh, the lawsuit just for a quick second, right? So As we mentioned and just kind of teased at the collective bargaining agreements, kind of the click term. Yep. And you might have just, if you're watching U.S. soccer, men's or women's, you might have just noticed that the MLS reached a collective bargaining agreement to bring players in again so with pre- preventing a lockout. We're going to be talking about some stuff on a similar end here shortly. Um, in the lawsuit, it says the Women's National Team Player Association entered into a new collective bargaining agreement with USSF effective January 1st, 2017, which is ending this year. It's a four-year agreement during during which the collective bargaining for a new contract. Um, the USSF rejected requests for compensation for the Women's National Team players that would have been at least equal to that afforded to the Men's National Team players. Okay, that's on par with what they've done so far. Mm-hmm. And further ahead on this lawsuit, they, uh, the Women's National Team Players Association kind of further goes on to say that even proposed, they even proposed a revenue sharing model that would test the USSF's market realities theory, which is basically saying we're paying the men more because they pull in more money. So the Women's National Team's coming up and saying, well, why don't we test it with an actual um uh, an actual model and, you know, run some simulations and under this model player compensation would increase in years in which the USSF derived more revenue from women's national team activities and player compensation would be less if revenue from those activities decreased. Um, and this would show the player's willingness to share in the risk and reward of the economic success of the women's national team. Unsurprisingly, the USSF rejected the model um, basically saying they also did not want to run the simulation to kind of <laughs> they're backpedaling. They're backpedaling. They're like, oh, if you're going to run a model, we're going to clearly be exposed here. So, well, yeah, I mean, remember, I read that quote earlier from a representative from the USSF market realities are such that the women do not deserve to be paid equally to the men. Right. So this is straight up the women saying okay, well, let's test this theory. Let's test this market realities theory that you have. And then the USSF says, no, nah, no, nah, we're not going to do that. Yeah, it's 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 really poor taste. Um, and then some of you might be wondering what the U.S. men's national team takes are on this. And, you know, there's some articles that state and kind of dissect it. We're not going to go too far into it, but saying the players, if the men's national team players might be worried about women's national team players earning more, like essentially the the speculation is how are the men's players going to react if the women's national team players wages increase? Um, right, and- <laughs> per my previous comment, these players make stupid amounts of money playing on the in their clubs in Europe and plenty more in the MLS. It doesn't appear that they view the pay distribution as a zero-sum game. Instead, they seem to regard higher pay for women's players as a matter of merit and fairness. So the men's team recognizes that there's merit for this cause, for 
um, at causing and calling for action for equal pay. Now, here's what. So, yeah, right. The the men's national team that CNBC article that I referenced earlier um, has has a quote from the players association. Right, the men's national team has issued a statement in support uh, for the women's team lawsuit against the USSF and for the revenue sharing model even, right? And the the specific quote is, the United States National Soccer Team Players Association fully supports the efforts of the U.S. women's national team players to achieve equal pay. Specifically, we are committed to the concept of a revenue sharing model to address the U.S. Soccer Federation's market realities and find a way towards fair compensation. So, yeah, it's also possible that higher wages for U.S. women's players will translate to higher wages for men's players. You know, as um, one labor group gaining sometimes leads to similar groups gaining. So if one party of similar stature wins, the other one might as well. And, you know, that's that's why unions exist um, for that kind of level of you know, winnings or like being able to voice the opinions of many from one narrow and focused point. Now, what I find fascinating, so I think what the downside to this lawsuit as it stands is their collective bargaining agreement. Their collective bargaining agreement doesn't backtrack to the length of back pay that they're trying to achieve. So, I still believe they're going to be able to press on that. But in the current collective bargaining agreement, I feel like they're going to lose in that situation based on their contract. Luckily, their contract gets renewed this year. But my big question is why, A, why are there different reps for these contracts between the women's team and the men's team? And a subset of that question is, why didn't they discuss or did they discuss these agreements? Because the women's collective bargaining agreement was signed to be paid up front. And that's what we're seeing. And the men chose the revenue route. And I'm not saying incentivized revenue and the incentivized revenue. Now, that is how that pay structure is being distributed. But I, and I, I'm not trying to backtrack everything we've gone over in this in this episode. But I am very intrigued as to how there might have been a miscommunication between the two because if the men's rep clearly saw larger earnings from incentivized revenue why i i feel like you're running the same numbers you are similar styles of numbers to be able to project that revenue and and how it didn't land on the table of the women's rep or if it did and what went on there is my big question and we will aim to dive into that um, in a future, especially episode. Matt, when you consider how dominant the women's team has been over the last two decades, yeah, it's so right? since the women's World Cup started 
basically. So yeah, like I guess the big question mark is what what went on there? Where was the miscommunication? It was their miscommunication that has led to um, this pay gap and the and their latest collective bargaining agreement. I'm not saying that the women are. It's it's been that way from the from its inception, but they had they're under an agreement that's expiring, and I really hope to see them kind of collaborate. I hope they collaborate in the future, but to kind of pull back to what we've discussed today on the entertainment value and the perception that people think that they're getting paid for their entertainment value. Blake has some quick recap to compress our long winded episode into some uh, digestible material. Closing statements. Yeah. If you've made it this far, (laughs) you're about to reach the end. This is this is the too long don't read that we put at the end of the episode. <laughs> um, all right, so so I'm essentially just going to recap the the video, right? Uh, so this guy argues that the women's national team is paid less because the women's game is less entertaining, less developed, um, with his argumentative evidence being World Cup revenue, right? Men's. World Cup revenue versus women's World Cup revenue. All right, this holds some truth if looking at it through this singular focus in the video, that focus being that the FIFA Women's World Cup generates less money than the men's, and therefore the prize money given out is less. Subsequently, it is impossible to pay the women's team equal or more than their male counterparts. Again, when looking at this, through the specific lens of this video. Sure, yeah, okay, this is true. FIFA cannot give out as much in prize money to the women's team for the Women's World Cup as their male counterparts because of the the revenue difference. But this is only looking at the issue from a narrow, narrow perspective. There's so much more than FIFA World Cup prize money to the women's national team lawsuit. This, however, is his sole argument. And we have so many problems with it, but we're we're just touching on a few, right? First and foremost, the lawsuit is against the United States Soccer Federation regarding the pay structure of the women's salary compared to the men's. It has nothing to do with FIFA World Cup prize money. Did you catch in the episode how the lawsuit, when we were reading from the lawsuit, it said nothing of World Cup prize money and consistently referenced salary pay, right? Next, his argument about the women's game being less developed on the international stage or having a terrible talent pool or whatever his exact wording is may highlight a U.S. Soccer Federation issue, but probably even more so, possibly, a a FIFA issue, right? Could FIFA be doing more to promote the women's game, right? Leading to increased profits. That's not to say FIFA doesn't do nothing, right? And it's not to say that the U.S. Soccer Federation is perfect. Far from it. Uh, There are definitely issues with promotion of the women's national team and of the women's game in general within the states. 
uh, that need to improve. And uh, we'll we'll touch on those in, in a later episode as that's part of this lawsuit too that, that we said that we would break down. But then another question, food for thought, is could FIFA do more to promote gender equity and equality outside of the game of soccer, right? I'm thinking in countries where societal and, dare I say, patriarchal norms mean girls can't play sports, right? If FIFA does more to combat this line of thinking, would the talent pool not grow, right? Would that not lead to more rapid growth in the women's game, which we have seen rapid growth in the women's game? The first Women's World Cup was in 1992. They had 12 teams, right? Then it went to uh, 16 teams and then 24 teams, right? That's in a 30-year span. There's been huge, huge growth in the women's game. But could it not do more to lead to more rapid growth, which would then lead to more competitive games and producing a final outcome to use the YouTube videos argument that we've been discussing this entire time, more entertaining games and more revenue? Yes. So... We're, we're going to leave it at that. Um, obviously, this was a long-winded episode. It's late at night. I was loud tonight. I want to apologize to my roommates whose bedrooms are relatively close to mine, and I've probably kept them up. Yeah, and we want to thank you for sticking with us this long. And to, I guess, wrap things up next episode, we might dive into the collective bargaining agreement just as a reminder. So stay tuned for that. Um, we also want to thank Duncan of the Missing Letters for producing the music that you've heard throughout the episode. So we are forever grateful to have our own sound on this podcast. And Speaking of the Missing Letters, they have their new EP dropping on the 12th, I believe. I believe yeah, this keep an eye out for that. And um, yeah, until next time. If you have questions and or, and or want to contact us, you can find us on Twitter at underscore up and over. Or on Instagram at MBFC up and over. All right. Thanks for listening. All I ever